morning. Grab a seat. We have, um, this is week nine of this Journey of the Soul series. I appreciate you uh, coming along with us uh, to deviate a little bit from our lectionary for the first uh, nine weeks. We're actually going to spend the next two weeks in Genesis, according to the lectionary, and then move into Advent. And uh, just along that note, if you want to really be ready for next week's message, read Genesis 1 and 2 this week. Um, I would say read it every day. Just read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and the next day read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I want you to get those two tellings of the creation story in your head before we come together next week. But we've kind of used Psalm 23 as a structure. We've looked at other passages along the way. and, and talked about these stages of the journey. What, I, what I, my hope was was that you could see as we look through Scripture, as we look through the history of, of believers, we see these patterns in the lives of people in their spiritual journey. They, they make this commitment to Christ, and they begin to grow and, 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 and become disciples, and then they begin to use their gifts in ministry. And very often we feel like that's kind of the, the arrival point. If I'm doing that, then everything's good. But, but God's not finished with us yet, and then often we hit this wall, this, this time of challenge, this time of difficulty, a time of struggle that actually drives us on what we called in, in our series an inner journey. We begin to look at who we are and what we're basing our life on and our identity, and, and the Spirit guides us in that process, the Holy Spirit. And the ultimate goal, which is this last stage, is, is what we call relational communion with God. Now, we don't really, that's a weird concept, relational communion. Uh, and it, it's, it's, we started talking a little bit about it last week. It's, it's a big topic, but it's something that's important. And I feel like we need to realize we need to spend some time thinking and engaging and welcoming this, this idea, this experience of, of relating to God into our lives. So this last Sunday in the series, we're going to be in John chapter 17, uh, it's a prayer uh, of Jesus in the upper room, probably in front of the disciples, possibly in the garden. We don't know exactly where it happened, but, but uh, he, he starts in the first part of John 17, in the first five verses, by actually praying for himself and what lies ahead in that evening and the next day. Uh, then in verses 6 to 19, he prays for his 12 disciples and what's facing them. And then the text that we're going to do today is verses 20 to 26. He closes the prayer by praying for me and for you, in his words, it's for those who will believe through the word of the disciples. So if you believe, if you're a Christian, this means that that night Jesus was actually praying these things for you. And so I want to look at this text. I want to think about what, what Jesus prays for us. Have you ever had a, a thing that you really cared about that you just couldn't stop praying about? It was kind of always welling up in you because it was something that was on your mind? Well, I, I want you to think about Jesus, God, Son of God, part of the Trinity, praying for us these things. Let's just look at verse 20 to 26 of chapter 17 of John. My prayer is not for them alone, the 12 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. And righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now, it's just six or seven verses, <laughs> but there's a lot in it. And I, I have to admit, I'm a little intimidated by trying to preach on this because I feel like I'm kind of looking at something in a distance that I, I want to understand fully. I want to know it, but I, but I don't quite get it. But hopefully I can kind of point in the direction and maybe you guys can look that way and we can move forward together. What I do see is that Jesus prays three things for me and you in this path. Very, three very clear things. First, it's a prayer for union and communion. Union and communion. The final stage, if you've been reading along in that book, we've, we've uh, looked at Journey of the Soul. The final stage in the journey, he calls it transforming union. There's this being bonded together with each other and with God. It's obviously what happens fully when Christ returns, right? But I, I do think we can begin to taste that. We can begin to glimpse that even now through the Spirit walking with us. And this is what Jesus prays for us that night, a deep connection with God and with each other. And there's a few things to note about this. First, union, or what we often call unity, is more than agreement. Union is more than agreement. In verse 21, he prays that all of them may be one, a union. And what does it mean for us to be one? And I think a lot of times we think of union as agreement. We agree, right? We, we, we think kind of along the same lines for the most part, especially on all the important stuff or what we think is the important stuff. And, and in churches, that's turned into denominations and different theologies. And, 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 and we think, okay, we're united as Baptists or Presbyterians or Mennonites, we're united, we're one. But there, there's something deeper here, I think, by, and I wanna, that's why I use that, that word union, because I think it's deeper than just agreement, that our connection is deeper than a mental acknowledgement of the same ideas. If you look over in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, just as each, one, each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member agrees with all the others. That's not what it says, is it? And each member belongs to all the others. It's not that we just agree. It's that somehow we actually are one, united. We belong to each other when we are followers of Christ. Even Mennonites and Baptists together, united. Hard to, that's miraculous, right? We'll even throw in a few Pentecostals for good measure, and we'll all be united in this one body. That's, that's why what we do in relationships, the relationships we have with those around us, that's why it really matters. Because it's not just about thinking the same things. It's, not, it, it's about a, a, that, that we belong, we're connected in some spiritual manner that we don't even really fully grasp. I am not just me, and you are not just you. I am us, and you are us, somehow. That's why we can't allow our disagreements to drive wedges between us. If I am in Christ, and you are in Christ, 
then I don't have a choice to disconnect with you just because you might think or do something that I disagree with. If we're both in Christ, we're united. That's what Jesus is praying for, this union. What if we saw marriage as as only working when you actually agreed with everything your spouse thought? Some of you are kind of laughing about that. How many of you agree with everything with your spouse? That's not what it is, but you're, you're knit together deeper than your agreements. And you actually realize that that being bonded actually helps you to grow in areas where you disagree. Jesus is praying for our union to one another, even despite our disagreements. I was just reading devotionally this morning, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. It won't be on the screen because I just read it. But it says, and, and he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he's purposed in Christ. The mystery of what he wants to do, he's made known to us. And he says, it will be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's the same idea, to bring us together somehow. Now, if we let that shape our relationships with each other, the thought of Jesus praying that we would be one with those that we struggle to get along with, with those who we disagree with, with those, heaven forbid, of a different political party, or a different ideology, that that all of us may be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. That's what he's asking for. It's a huge challenge. (laughs) I want you to see in verse 22, we learn that, that the way to do that, glory given, is the pathway. Look at verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one. Glory, the Hebrew word for glory, this is the Greek word, but the Hebrew word is kavod. We've talked about that before, this heaviness of the manifestation of the presence of God. It's, it's his significance. Uh, maybe more back in the 60s, people would say, man, that's heavy, right? There's an idea or something that somebody brings up, or, or you walk into a room and you feel like there's lots going, a grieving room, and it's just heavy, right? Because there's, it touches the deepest parts of who we are. That's this idea of the glory. And Jesus says, He has given to us the glory that the Father gave him. That he in some way has shared his reality with us so that we could know God in a deeper way in his fullness, in his glory. We've talked about that Trinitarian divine life flowing through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how it can come to us. That's what I think he's driving out here. This this shared glory is one of the things that helps us move deeper into union with each other. How does it work? I don't actually know, other than to know that, that, that if you're willing to be open to God's glory showing up in unusual places, he will actually pull you closer to other people. If, if you're willing to, to take a long look at who Jesus is and the way he lived and what he has done, it begins to transform you and draw you closer to each other. That verse we come back to almost every week, I feel like, in my sermon, 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. As we reflect, as we the the other translation of that word, as we contemplate, as we spend time engaging with who God is and his glory, it actually changes us, makes us more like him, draws us closer to each other. A.W. Tozer talks about tuning pianos. And he says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? 
They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard by which each one, to which each one must individually bow. And, and one of the things when we talk about being one with each other, sometimes we think we have to be exact, we have to tune ourselves to them. And that's not the point. The point is we need to tune ourselves to Jesus through the Spirit, and that will draw us closer to each other despite our disagreements, despite our differences. Lots of times what we think are disagreements are just the diversity of the body of Christ, that he's pulled it together. But if we try to make everybody like us and do what we do and think exactly what we do, we're not unifying the body. What we need to do is look to Jesus and let let his glory and his grace flow through us to see and experience who God is. And as we do, this allows us space to move into union with others. And when it happens, the fruit of this is mission. The fruit of this is mission. Look at verse 21, the second part. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you've sent me. And then in verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. See, this is when mission happens, when we're connected at this level of being related to God, being his body, all of a sudden people are drawn to that, right? Because there's a, there's a richness and a depth to that relationship that the world is longing for. And Jesus says, may they be one even as we are one so that the world will know who I am. We often put mission before that. We put mission as this activity that we have to get done so that, so that God will be happy. And yet the reality is if we can live in a relationship with God, mission flows out of that without us even having to really work at it, I think. I think it just happens. Jesus prays for us to be one as he and the Father are one. That's his desire for you and me. And it has huge implication for the relationships that we have with each other. Second thing we see in verse 24 about this prayer is it's a prayer for awareness of presence. Verse 24. Let me find it. That's the hard part about wearing glasses up here is I can't, once I get them on, I have to readjust everything. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus Praise that we would be with him. And now there's, there's two kind of angles I want, to, I want to talk about with this. The first is as a present experience, right? Because he is always with us. That's the last thing he said before he ascended into heaven. Remember, he talked about going to make disciples of all nations. And then the very last thing he said before he ascended in Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He is with us. We talked about that last week. Through the Spirit, he is actually in us all the time. The problem is not his presence, but our awareness of his presence. It's like uh, the tuning of a radio station. You can be in your car, and just because you turn off the radio, it doesn't mean that all the radio stations have stopped broadcasting their frequency. They're still there. You're just not tuning into them. And, and one of the things I think we need to begin to remember is that God is always here with us. He promised, I will be with you always, even until the very end of the age. Often our lives are are too full for us to to actually be aware of that. We get so busy and focused on what we're doing day by day that we lose this sense of the presence of God. We're going to talk about that at the end. But one of the the angles of this presence is, is this current experience, but also I want you to realize he's talking about a longing for the fulfillment, for future fulfillment. That one day, it won't just be this awareness that we kind of have to tune into, but we'll actually be present 
with God. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them, and they will be, and will be their God. Sometimes that longing for what will come one day is what helps us stay attuned to the current experience of the presence. And like I said, we'll get back to this in a minute, but he's praying, first of all, that we would be one with, with each other and with the Father. He's praying that we would have this sense of his presence and to be with him. And third, it's a prayer for knowing. In verse 25 and 26, he talks about, this is Jesus wanting God to be known to us. The goal of the spiritual life is knowing, fully knowing Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. As it is with any relationship, it takes time to mature and time to know. But, but I want us to think about this a lot, this, this how we know God. I'm going to do a, a Sunday school uh, for two weeks in December during Advent to talk about what it means to know God. But don't you find it interesting? Jesus is God, and Jesus is praying that we would know God. It, it, it kind of excites me because sometimes we feel like, how can I ever know God? Or what's he, why is he hiding himself from me? And yet here we have God himself praying that God would be known by us. And, and I think we've got to, to really think about what it means to know, and I talked a little bit last week about knowing as a relational process. And we'll get into this more in the Sunday school class, but knowing in our world has become way more about facts and statements and things that we believe, that we can write down, that this is the truth that we know, that we hold in our hands, tangible things. And, 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 and those are good. I'm not saying we don't need good, strong doctrinal statements and, tr- and truth statements. But knowing a doctrinal statement is different than knowing a person. How many times has somebody come back to you, angry at you about something, and they say, but you said this, and then they repeat your very words. You ever had that? But the problem is they don't understand what you meant by those words. Yes, they're right. They know the words that you said, but you said, and you're like, but that's not what I meant. And, and there's a difference between knowing the statement and knowing the person. I can know that someone is a teacher, or, or I can know that they live at a certain address, or I can know that they have a certain number of children, and I can be right about all those things, but I may not know them at all. Because knowing is this relational process. That's why Jesus didn't say, I've come to teach you the truth as much as he said, I am the truth. Right? Knowing is is this relationship. And and the truth is, we can't actually verbalize everything that we know. How many of you, at some point in your life, have just said this? Have you said, I just know. I can't tell you why, but I just know. I know. Down deep in my bones, I know. I know. And you can't articulate it all. You see, that, that's, this, this type of knowing is what I think God's calling us to. And yes, the, the truth statements and the doctrines are a, a, a way we get there. But this knowing that Jesus is praying for is a relational process. It's, it's not something we control, but something that we commit to. Coming back to that idea of marriage, that's what you do when you get married. You pledge to know someone. How many of you knew your spouse when you got married? You knew them. You knew some things about them, but how many things didn't you know? And that's part of the joy of the journey is this knowing relationally over time. That's what he's calling us to. That word from 2 Corinthians 3.18, to contemplate, to sit with, to look at, to know. 
when, when we allow ourselves to be impacted by who God is as a person and not just statements about God. And it's so important because when we know, we love. Do you catch that in verse 26? I have made you known to them, Jesus says, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. That's, that's the whole purpose, that as we know God, we love. 1 John 4, 19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. And as we know him, that love is, is made manifest in us and flows out of us, which leads to a union with others that is way deeper than agreement. It's a union based on the love of God, the love that God has for them. It changes the way we look at the world when you get this. One of the things I've been really convicted about in my own life lately is how I just will speak demeaningly of other people <laughs> for whatever reason, because they have a different political reasoning than I do or they think differently about the pandemic than I. And I just begin to call them things that are beautiful words like idiot, slow, and all those things. And, and you know what? The reality is God loves them. Do I really want to talk about somebody God loves in that way? What if... What if someone came into your house and started criticizing the people you loved and calling them idiots and slow? It's not, it's not what we want to do, is it? And I think one of the problems is we don't, as, as we know God, we grow in this love, and we've got to realize that he loves, for God so loved who? The world, right? And if we aren't loving as God loves, you know, it's not about just tighten it down and trying harder to love somebody. The problem is we don't, we don't really know God relationally in that way because Jesus says, as I'm, I'm going to make them know, you, you known to them so that the love you have for me will be in them. This knowing cultivates love. So that's what he's praying for us. The question is, how, how are we going to be living into the answer to Jesus' prayer? How, how do we live in a way that answers his prayer? Come back to that verse all the time in Matthew 25. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. How can we actually live in such a way that will answer these three things that Jesus prayed for us? This, this communion with, within the union within the body and communion within the Trinity being fed by this awareness of God's presence all the time and actually knowing God relationally so that the love of God flows through us. How can we do that? How do we get to that well done, good and faithful servant? What's, it's challenging. I told Jake this is a really hard one because it's such, a, such an ethereal concept, communion with God. It's hard to think about practical application, but I thought, okay, well, what, what do we do in relationships? If the goal is a relationship, what do we do? What does scripture teach us to do in relationships? So I want to look at, at how we grow in relationships, both, both scripturally and practically, as a guideline for how we can live into being an answer to Jesus' prayer. The first thing I see is that if we're, we're going to grow in this direction, it has to involve a process of dethroning the self. Dethroning the self. If your life is all about you, then you have no room for anyone else in any substantive way. Dio Moody says, God sends no one away except those who are full of themselves. <laughs> and I think that's, that's one of the things we have to learn. If we're going to grow into our relationship with God, we have to start by 
stepping back from our desires and our expectations and meeting him on his terms. There's a book, um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It's, it's um, a lovely book written by a lady named Annie Dillard. It, it, she spent a year, I think it was in Virginia, on the, living in a cabin on the banks of this little creek, and she would go out every day and just watch. She was an introvert to the extreme, I think. But, but, but as you watch what she does and listen to her tell her stories, there's, there's huge spiritual truth in what she learns. But she, talks, she has a whole chapter on stalking muskrats because she says there's muskrats in that creek, but have, nobody ever sees them. And she says, because when you're trying to see a muskrat, you can't just kind of walk up. You can't just show up and say, where's the muskrat? Hey, muskrat. You can't call them. They don't come, right? Because their goal is to hide. And she says she would go and she would sit down on the, on the edge of the bank. And this is one of her, her sections. Can I stay still? How still? It's astonishing how many people cannot or will not hold still. I could not or would not hold still for 30 minutes inside. But at the creek, I learned to slow down to center down. I am not excited. My breathing is slow and regular. In my brain, I'm not saying, muskrat, muskrat, there. I'm saying nothing. If I must hold a position, I do, I do not freeze, because if I freeze, I lock my muscles, I'll get tired, and I'll break. Instead of going rigid, I go calm, and I center down wherever I am. I find a balance and a repose. I retreat not inside myself, but outside myself. And what she, what she drives to, and her, her final point is, you, if you want to see a muskrat, you have to see the muskrat on the muskrat's terms. You can't do it your way. You have to go and sit quietly and do nothing and wait. And, and I think that's far too often we want to meet God the way we want to meet God. We want to know God the way we want to know God. And the key way to move forward in knowing God is to begin to take ourselves out of the driver's seat. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. See, this is true of our relationship with God. It's true of our relationships with each other. We, we have to begin to be present to people on their terms and present to God on his terms instead of forcing our way in. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. One of the key ways we live in answer to this prayer of Jesus is to get up every morning and pray a short, meaningful prayer to dethrone yourself. I don't know what it is. You can look it up. There's lots of, you can Google it. How do I pray to get myself out of the way? You can read your Bible. You can, but just every morning start the day by saying, okay, God, your will, not mine today. Dethrone yourself. Second, what do we do for relationships with God and with others? We, we need to start making space to develop attention to presence. I, I really believe, and I think that we, we, we learned this in the pandemic, our lives are way too full. And we feel any dead spaces with mental activities. And I, I just want to tell you, your life will not magically empty at some point. It will not empty You'll not wake up one morning and all of a sudden have vast moments of time. Maybe if you're in the hospital, that's a, but, but in general, our lives do not empty unless we try to empty them a bit. And often this is what the wall is about in our spiritual journey. It forces us to slow down and to quiet, to stalk God like Annie Dillard stalked muskrats, to sit and wait and listen. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. This being still and making space 
to develop attention to the presence of God that's with us. And finally, part of this is cultivating a longing for what isn't yet. This is another counterintuitive aspect of the spiritual journey. We, we often think in my spiritual journey, I just want things to be settled. I just want to feel like I've gotten there. I want to know. I want, to, I want the peace of God. And yet, what, what I, I often see happening in the spiritual journey, it's in this cultivation of a longing for something that's not yet. It actually fuels our spiritual life. Our desires for something deeper and fuller. And I think one thing that can help us in this this dance of divine life with the Trinity, is to long for more, to read that passage in Revelation 21 and 22 and let it wash over us so that we actually long for it. I love Jake's prayer today, this, this psalm that was written to the tune of the dead son and it's speaking of God's faithfulness. You see what that is? That's in, in the middle of pain and suffering to, to be longing for the end of pain and suffering. And what that does is it stirs up a fire in your belly to want more of God. There's a beautiful story in Luke 18 about a blind beggar calling out to Jesus. And it says in Luke 18, 40, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that something? Incarnation, God of the universe, to the lowest guy in society who everybody walked by, couldn't go to the temple, couldn't worship because he was blind, he was a beggar. And the God of the universe says, what do you want me to do for you? And, and how many times do we not ever answer that question? Why don't, why don't we just say, God, this is what I want you to do for me. I want, I want to know you relationally. I want, I want to hunger for you. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know where it's going. I don't know how it's going to play out in my life, but that's what I want. To slow down long enough to, to really taste, yes, that is what I want. In the words of the psalmist in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? This is ultimately what Jesus is praying, I think, for you, is this longing to know him. And yes, it, it, it has union and communion involved and it's awareness of his presence, but there's this deeper longing to know God that begins, it's that Second Corinthians passage where we look at him and we reflect that glory, we're thinking about it and we're hungering for it and all of a sudden God begins to flow in and through us and transform us. That's what I think Jesus wants for us. That's what I think is the, that's the reason we're on this journey of the soul. Let's pray. God, this is... Um, out there, and we don't really know how to practice these things of relationally living with you and seeing your glory and reflecting your glory to the world around us. These are lovely sounding words, but how? And so we just ask today, God, when you ask what do we want you to do for us, we want to know you. We want, we want to, to take who you are actually into us and be one with you, and we want that to flow into our relationships with others. Forgive us where we've built bridges and wall, or walls between each other and help us to, to begin to see others as deeply loved by you, to shape our lives in ways that would help them to see you. Help us to know you, God. As we come to this table, help us to know you in a deeper way. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Father God, we do want to know you. And not just in a textbook knowledge way. God, we want to experience you. To experience, as we sang earlier, the glory of your goodness. So God, we come to a table now. And we come uh, trusting that as we eat, as we drink, as we take part in you and in your goodness, your sacrifice for us, God, that we would come to know you in a greater way. We thank you for this, for this display of your love and faithfulness for the salvation you bring. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He broke it and blessed it. And while we might hear the voices of sin and self whispering in our ears to take and eat all other sorts of elements, we should hear Jesus offering you to take and eat. This is his body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup, having blessed it. said, this is my blood, shed for you. Take and drink. Coming to know God is not a one-time thing. You don't arrive. It's a journey. But with each meal, with each gathering, with each encounter, we come to know God more and more. And that is something we can rejoice in. Let's rejoice in our Heavenly Father making a way for us now. When I was a kid in my church, um, I had my grandmother, my mom's mom, was one of those people that, that just prayed and things happened. And um, I can remember an elder in my church saying, when your grandmother says, I'm going to pray for you, it's a threat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can remember as a kid being aware of that and things that I was really concerned about, I would ask her to pray for she seemed to have some pull. And, and it gave me great peace to know, okay, there's somebody that God listens to. Well, what about the fact that the person praying for you to know God is actually God? God wants you to know God. And that means he will not fail in that. As, as you move forward, as you surrender, as you learn to dethrone yourself, he will make himself known to you in deeper and richer ways. And that's my prayer for you this week. Amen. Amen.